Welcome to the Edition Wars Podcast, where we take a deep dive into the mechanics and playstyles of all the editions of our favorite game. We look at what worked, what didn't, what led to better games, as well as what did the other thing, and we talk about it all. In this episode, we're going to discuss the appendices of the 5th edition DMG. Uh, we have Appendix A through D? I think it's D. Uh, we can probably skip the table, the, the index. You know, we'll see. Uh, and uh, with us tonight, we have uh, my very good friend, Colin McLaughlin. How are you doing, Colin? Hello, I'm doing all right. I was promised indices, not just appendices. Right. So I don't, right. not, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I, I was not promised that at all. We can go into depth on those, on those indices, man. So what we got to do, keeping the guests happy, it's job one. You know, it, it, it's, it, it's we, we, you know, if we really need to, we can talk about the index first. <laughs> no, 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 it's, it's, it's okay. I can, I can, I can keep this one close to my chest. It's, it's, it's all right. I, uh, I got new glasses so I can actually read the uh, index now. <laughs> <laughs> so Appendix A opens with random dungeons. Um, oh, I did also forget to introduce Sam. Hi, Sam. <laughs> I'm a, Hello. I am the best co-host. Woo. No, it's fine. It's okay. This is Sam Dillon. He's great. <laughs> I was I was promised indices too. Fair, fair enough. So appendix A. Appendix A. Uh, random dungeons, um, and so this is this is certainly a solution to. Oh God, my friends are going to be here in. Five or ten minutes, I have nothing. Mm-hmm. Help. Or it is a throwback to the first edition, DMG, which also had appendices, that also had Appendix A, Random Dungeon Generation, and also had many, many tables in it, just like this one does. And... A lot of the tables are very similar, although in this 5th edition version, they have been consolidated a little bit. Okay. Uh, and there are some things that are that are not exactly the same, but in general, it's the same idea. So it's, it's a throwback. It's a throwback, uh, but, you know. It makes me think of... Um the the blog uh, blog of holding um, mm-hmm. that I have enjoyed for so many years. They did a little browser game uh, that randomly generated dungeons using the random dungeon generation uh, tools from the one EDMG, and you just would go as deep as you could in the dungeon and see how much treasure you could you know, walk out with. It was pretty right. great. It was a little uh, roguelike. Yep. Yeah, that was fun. So what do you think about this chapter, Colin? I think last time I was on the show way, way back when, um, I, I mentioned how it would be really nice to have a, a more simplified way to run dungeons for new people. Um, and when I said that, I was thinking of the appendices, because in my personal opinion, if you pull out appendices A through D with very few extra words, you have a really workable source of, hey, you want to run a bunch of dungeons and don't know how? This is what you do. Um, that that said, I do think it's a huge miss at the beginning of Appendix e, or, or Appendix A not to have, hey, generate how many rooms your dungeon might have. 
I do feel like that is a crucial missing piece that is uh, not present. That's, uh, that's a super strong point, yes. <laughs> I mean, it, to be fair, uh, in the second paragraph, it says, it talks about uh, how the limit is the graph paper that it's drawn on, but you can choose to make it smaller or, you know, whatnot. <laughs> it will expand to fill the allotted space, much like your meeting. Yeah, but I, I mean, I, I do agree that it's, it feels like a missed opportunity that the very first thing that it presents is something you have to decide on your own, not roll on a table to decide. Or have any sort of guidance on what they consider a large versus small versus medium dungeon, right? E- right. Even that yep. sort of, I think, guidelines really help a DM who hasn't done a dungeon crawl before. Say, like, a small dungeon is three to five rooms. A medium dungeon is five to seven. Right. Or an example, right? Like, if, yep. if your idea is to, you know, produce a castle, it's generally going to have this shape and this these types of rooms, right? And like, there's no example, Right. That's certainly true. Um, I, I think it also puts me in mind of a lot of uh, dungeon crawling style board games that have had to figure out how to tell you when to stop so that you don't have to lay out every tile in their whole deck of tiles. I'm thinking of like Castle Ravenloft and um, a Betrayal at House on the Hill, a Betrayal at uh, Betrayal Baldur's Gate, um, that like there's this huge sort of subgenre of dungeon crawling board games that have had to solve this problem, and I think that turning that into a table should actually be pretty attainable. Uh, so I, I hadn't I hadn't thought about it before, Brandis, but you know, I've been playing a ton of Gloomhaven lately, right? Yep, yep. Um, and Gloomhaven has the doors and and all that, but more than that, it has the objective of how to complete the scenario, and it's not always just about killing right right and yeah. uh boy when you're generating a dungeon to have a goal that's not kill all the things that seems like a really handy tool and i think uh we'll probably talk about that in the good next d but yeah yeah do we also get some of that in the um adventure writing chapter um which might be like chapter uh yeah chapter three we get a little bit of that but oh yeah yeah we got some goals got some goals okay goals yeah, so the book is okay on that, but a, a pointer to the uh, chapter three tables would be a really nice just inclusion here, because this is this is the very tool focused part, pointing to the uh, more information and guidance focused part would be strong. Yeah, it, it kind of assumes that you already have an idea of what your dungeon is going to be even though you're randomly generating it, it, it kind of assumes that you know whether it's going to be a lair or a maze or a mine or, you know, a stronghold or a temple or a tomb or some, you know, treasure vaults. Or if you're wondering where I'm getting these names, I'm getting them from the chamber purpose tables, which are a couple of pages later. And I'm doing that to make the point that uh, it would have been nice to have these, you know, these like if it had a uh i think isn't in one of the chapters it has like a dungeon purpose or purpose of the structure table or something right, right? Like, um that that also i want to say is i think is in chapter, chapter three, three. Right? yeah 
Yeah. So one of the things that Appendix A does, it links to all these other chapters, but I don't think it's until halfway through where it calls out linking to that creating adventures table, right? It's kind of buried in like a second, a second paragraph. You know, the tables in general are workable. The starting area, passages and doors and chamber side, you know, all these sort of size tables are, you know, whatever. They're, they're relatively generic. It's fine. The stairs table is fine. How many, how many exits there should be per chamber. That, that's all fine. Uh, very standard, kind of generic. It's not until we get to the, the chamber purpose tables, right? And the, the where, this is where you decide what kind of a dungeon you're actually creating. Is it a lair? Is it a maze? Is it a mine? Is it a planar gate? Is it a, uh, you know, uh, whatever. And then you use that table to generate what the rooms are for, right? What are the chambers for? Well, I, I do want to say uh, the the foundational assumption that a planar gate is a type of dungeon is not actually attested broadly. And, and so I find that to be a really interesting world-building note. Like, right. oh, all of your planar gates are going to be at the bottom of a dungeon somewhere. Well, that's kind of cool, actually. Right. I, right. Yeah, I, I would... I would do that. Like, it does mean that plane shift becomes even more of a skip the adventure spell. But sure, <laughs> right? Yeah, I love the inclusion of planar gate in here, right? And that's definitely the one that unsurprisingly sticks out to me. Yeah, yeah. Planescape as uh, a very interesting concept, right? Um, and it is a very detailed table too, com- compared to some of the others. Yeah, it's got it's got a ton of entries, and it's a really interesting mix of kind of the rare and special and the quotidian. You've got everything from a latrine or bath to a planar junction where the gate to another plane once stood. Twenty five percent chance of being active. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay, <laughs> right. Um, and and I'll note that 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 sort of entry is different from what you would find on say the lair dungeon table, right? Where you will find things like a trophy room or museum and a guard room for defense of the lair or a kennel for pets and guard beasts, right? Yeah. 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 And, you know, latrine or bath is going to show up in, in most of these to make the point that, you know, monsters poop because Lord knows they will get dragged if the monsters don't have somewhere to poop for <laughs> reasons. I don't know. People love this stuff. Yeah. And then, you know, the stronghold table and the temple shrine table also consequently has rooms that, of course, match that thematic. Yep. And just an enormous number of entries. Right, right. Really nice, really nicely done tables. And then it also uh, has just a generic general chamber table for any any type of dungeon. Yeah. Right, at, at the end of this section. So that's good. It's it's a decent, uh, you know, because here's the thing. If you have never created your own dungeon, you've only run through dungeons uh, in, in published adventures, and you really want to start, you know, seeing sort of how this kind of thing works, right? Uh, then, you know, this, this isn't bad. This will start getting your juices flowing in terms of thinking about how things are supposed to work and, you know, what, what, what sort of things would be in this old abandoned dungeon and, and all that sort of thing. Um, I do want to say though, that, uh, it's, uh, it doesn't like, it has a layer 
right, as as a sort of type of dungeon, uh, and then a maze and a mine and a, and a tomb and all that. Um, it doesn't ever, as far as I could tell, make a distinction between like a chamber that is um, sort of like a cavern where it's sort of a natural thing versus being a built structure. Uh, yeah, fair. Uh, and so I think it, it it could go a, a little bit to say, you know, and perhaps I just skipped over it when I was reading, but I think it that's one thing it's missing is some sort of, um, you know, description of, you know, these things don't have to be square. You know, I mean, I know it has, you know, if, for example, in the um, in the chamber, there's a chamber table for the size and shape of a chamber, square, rectangle, circle, octagon, trapezoid. Right. Right. Of different sizes. And so that's fine, but there's a difference between a square room that is a built room in a in an actual constructed castle dungeon, stronghold dungeon, versus a roughly square room that has been carved out due to eons of erosion because it's a natural cavern structure. Right. And you know, looking at the the dice tables for these, like one of the things about a cavern is that the rooms don't have a purpose. The, the rooms just are rooms because that's right. what the water did, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe the thing living there assigned it a purpose, right? And at which point you'd use the chart to say room purpose, probably. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Right. right. Um, one one thing that stands out to me about these a little bit is uh, I think there's another scenario that these see a lot of use. I think in the world of map creation, uh, Patreons. A lot of people are getting these, you know, high def, really nicely designed maps, and then they're trying to say, "Well, what do I do with it?" Because the creators obviously create them as generic as possible so that people can fill in the details, right? Yeah, yeah. No, that's a good point. But uh, over overall, in general, these are really nice tables. They they very closely uh, mimic something that uh, feels useful. Um, you know, I, I can see rolling on these, and even if it's just to give me inspiration, right? I might make a decision about, well, it doesn't make any sense for the kitchen to be there. You know, uh, I might want it somewhere else. But, you know, like that's that's just part of using a table to help you flesh out something, right? Uh, yeah, like um, a lot of what I want to do with these is not, in fact, roll because who knows what order the rooms we let out in. So you wouldn't necessarily want to use dice to ter- determine everything. It'd be like uh, you know, touring, you know, houses when you're when you're thinking about buying a house, and just the laundry's in the the kitchen, but you know, yeah, none of the rest of the house is accessible. That kind of thing. Maybe you want to avoid that. Um, but it occurs to me that. If you used a sort of uh, progressive dice rolling method, where you're not rolling uh, a d100 on the d100 table, but maybe a, a few d6s, and then for your next room, you just add to your previous result. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're progressing through the through the rooms with with your dice. You could probably structure the table so that, that actually kind of worked. Right. Yeah. Uh, it'd be a lot of figuring, but. My, my imagination has been really stuck on that approach to large tables recently, mm-hmm. um, as both of you know, but our listeners might not. <laughs> and then it moves into um, the contents of the chamber. You know, is it a, a creature? Is it an obstacle? Is it a hazard? Is it a trap? 
uh, and and it has a couple of paragraphs about motivation and uh, and you know in other words you should not just have a monster in the room because it needs to be in the room it shouldn't just be a monster in a closet it should have some sort of motivation uh, it should be doing something right not just standing there waiting for the for the players uh, PCs to come and hack it to death. Um, and I mean, unless that's what you want to do and that's a great deal of fun, which is fine. Cause it is, uh, <laughs> sometimes it's just nice to go in and kick a little butt, you know? Right. It's interesting to me. The, the things that people do, the sort of contortions they go through to, uh, explain a monster's sort of ecological position and it, where it gets his life support. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Uh, like, you find a lot of this monster's in stasis because I want to use something that isn't an undead or an elemental or a construct. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And everything else would be either mobile or hungry and starved to death. So I got to do something kind of thing. It, it, you see that a lot, especially in Undermountain. Um, There's a lot of this monster's in stasis, till, uh, stasis still awakened, which is fine. Um, it's an interesting deviation from what's here in just that like idea of how, how dungeons should feel sense. Not that I'm expecting Watsi to have used this tool for their own dungeon building. That's not how that works. Yeah. But, uh, but so for the, the monster motivation chart, just for the audience, it has, uh, you roll a D 20 and there's a list of goals that the creature could have. So find a sanctuary, conquer the dungeon, seek an item in the dungeon, slay a rival, hide from enemies, recover from a battle, avoid danger, or seek wealth. And the thing is that, you know, the creature is not standing there ready to yell out, don't attack me, I'm just seeking wealth, right? Like, that's not... But it gives you an idea of what that creature is going to be doing, right? If it's really only there to seek wealth, then it might be more likely to run away, right? Or if it's there to seek wealth and that's the room with all the treasure... Maybe its plan is to, when you when it hears you coming down the hall, it's going to hide, let you come in and open the chest that's trapped, and then it'll come and attack you and then take the treasure, right? It's, uh, there's all sorts of these, you know, again, I'm using it as an inspiration, not as this is the end-all be-all of everything that's going to go in this dungeon, and it has to conform to everything I roll on the table. Yep. Right. I, I do know a lot of people find that, like being stuck with a random result that they didn't expect and really struggle to fit in creates really good outcomes for them uh, mm-hmm. because they have to like imagine a new connection that they wouldn't have otherwise made. And I admire that so much and I wish my brain worked that way. I, I lock up so bad and it frustrates me in no end. Well, and that actually brings up the question of, you know, uh, something that we talk about often anytime there's a, um, a random table in front of us is, are you using that table for prep or are you using that table at the, at the game table during the game? And the majority of the time, no matter what tables that we've been talking about, with the exception of one in this book, um, the majority of the time, you're using this to prep and for inspiration and to help you get through some things. And to so, you know, in that case, having it lock you up is a problem, but you can just decide 
if something doesn't immediately make sense to me, I'm just going to skip it and either move on or roll again, right? Yep. Um, and the one table that I was talking about that's the exception to to that sort of prep or not uh, question is the table of what's in the building when the when the people are running through town and uh, the the DM hasn't hasn't set up the entire every single building in the town and you just have a nice table there to roll on and oh you just ran into uh, the general store or you know somebody's jewelry shop or you know someone's home so. I, I could definitely see a scenario where people are using monster motivations at a table, um, especially mm-hmm. if they're running a dungeon and, you know, it's more of the mega dungeon variety where, you know, they have to c- come up with the ecology of this entire dungeon. Um, it could be really useful to have that sort of reaction or, you know, standing at your fingertips, I guess. Right. And that's partly where you could also work that into a morale system, right? Where if the monster's motivation is important at all, it's going to play into how strongly it adheres to, uh, you know, its morale when it's under attack or when something's disturbing its normal behavior. Well, and the other thing that really uh, strikes me there is um, the like the the goals um, because of things like recover from battle or hide from enemies. Um, Slayer rival, like that sounds to me like you're making a positioning role uh, in the Blades in the Dark sense, but what you're playing is the Hunger Games. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. every monster in this dungeon is hunting every other monster. There might be teams of two or whatever, but that's about it. And go. But now you're seeing what condition the monster is in by what its motivation is uh, at the moment of the encounter, like as soon as you see it. Right. And I mean, the, the text here talks about, um, you know, that a large group of monsters uh, that's forming a faction might have a particular goal as a whole faction or an individual monster. You could do, do it for an individual for a room, whatever monsters are in that room have a particular goal that might be different from monsters mm-hmm. in a different room, especially if they're not part of the same faction. Um, but I mean, yeah, it's, it's, again, it's, it's one of those things. If you're using it to prep, it's a nice little, you know, two, two word phrase to put next to your notes about that creature that you just put in that room that you randomly determined. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think one of my favorite charts in this later section, though, is the is it the trap section that has like the anti life aura and all sorts of those those things like that on it. Um, yeah. Part of the reason I like it so much is it's pretty zany, all things considered, for the rest of the chapter. Right? You have like you know normal traps and people looking for sanctuaries or whatever else, and then you have like an anti-life aura and creatures can't regain hit points or here's a bunch of lava or mushrooms or whatever else. Right. Um, <laughs> like all the obstacles are like, man, they're, they run the gamut, I guess. That's what I'm saying here. Yeah. So actually just to go back real quick and then, and then to, we can move back forward to that is I wanted to point out something about the dungeon chamber contents table. You can have a monster. You can have a monster with treasure you can have a monster with a pet. 
you can have a monster pet guarding treasure. You can have a hazard with treasure. You can have an obstacle, a trap, a trick, an empty room, an empty room otherwise with a hazard, or an empty room otherwise with treasure. But you cannot have a monster and a trap or a monster and an obstacle. Uh, you can't fool me, uh, or either of the two of you. We all ran 4th edition. We know perfectly bloody well that is a great <laughs> idea. That is the <laughs> better I, idea. Right, and I'm just saying, like, for this table, it's a D100 table, yeah. and it's not as long as a lot of the other D100 tables in this book, and I wish that it was, because there's a lot more mix and match you can do in there. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah. But no, I, I agree. I do agree with Colin uh, about the uh, with Colin about the uh, the trap effects and the tricks and the you know the tricks the, are outstanding. If you wanted yeah. to run a dare I say it Ministry of Magic or say Curios game, this the trick table is is your jam right mm-hmm. there. You yep. a million magical effects. This table's got it. Yep. Yep. And I mean, a, a fair amount of this kind of stuff is showing up in um, Blue Alley that. Uh, I'm I'm running you know, Colin and the rest of that gaming group through right now. It's very much in this mode, I think. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah, I mean, this was basically all of the the fourth edition Planescape stuff that that you ran into, Brandis, right? Yep. I mean, yep. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, and especially in combination with the trick objects, it also really, really feels like the, the very first level of Undermountain in uh, Dungeon of the Mad Mage. Mm-hmm. Um, both the 5th edition version and the the original 2nd ed version because they're quite, quite similar and, and connected. But right. just a lot of, and you come to a room and there's a weird thing and if you investigate it, you'll probably get zapped. I don't know, I don't know what to tell you. Isn't that what uh, Tricks and Traps are for? Uh, so yeah, th- those are very useful tables for just trying to spark a lot of weird ideas, you know, to to generate friction that creates more light than heat. Well, and and and, and the the noises, air and odors tables are very similar in that, <laughs> right? That you get you get strange noises, you get weird uh, effects in the air that not harmful, but they are there, or you get some weird odor uh, that, of course, leads to if you're my players, hours of investigation just because something stank, you know. <laughs> well, um, and all of them are bad smells. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Like. I mean, I, I think how popular Fate is right now is sort of a concept in a lot of games and a lot of the content you see being released and people engaging with. And, uh, I mean, these charts are just, you need to run an ad hoc night market? Here you go. Absolutely. Yep. yep. You, could, you could do a ton with this and uh, a, a night market or goblin market kind of, kind of situation, for sure. Um, just the general features, like... The, the kind of bits and bobs that are there um, just trying to imagine around that general features table could turn into everything in the market stall. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the same with the smells and sounds and air and everything else. Right. For sure. That's a, that's a really good point. Yep. 
and the general furnishings and general features tables are like enormous. Those two tables are huge. Yeah, that yeah, I mean, there are what about six items on here that have more than one number, uh, and that's it. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah, they they didn't skimp on this, and I really admire that. And the the next couple pages after it, we we just drill down and down and down, and like when you get to the book scrolls and uh, book scrolls and tomes table like yeah sign mm-hmm. me up <laughs> i mean yeah, i mean it's awesome right it's awesome this is it's just literally a dust to dust dungeon <laughs> but, ha- but ha- like but seriously though like how many times uh have you run a game where there's a bookshelf and of course the pcs go over to the bookshelf and they want to know what's on the shelf right hey colin do you think i've ever done that <laughs> oh my god <laughs> <laughs> Brandis, can you tell me what the streets are named in this particular? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was actually a, a, a table for that in. Um, yeah, was it chapter five? Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what, what I do know is because uh, I can't stop thinking about things with mage furnishings, the books and scrolls table, and then the planar gate table from up above. Uh, you randomly generate yourself a tower of high sorcery. Is what yes, I yes, you do. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you do. That is. That is a, a very just uh, okay. You just flip pages back and forth and keep rolling until you're happy, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I, I also want to mention uh, that these. So there, there's a utensils and personal items table, which is fantastic. Uh, it includes um, entries like ear spoon and uh, uh, statuette or figurine. Is that a bohemian uh, tr- ear spoon? Tr- <laughs> right. I, I do not know. I think it's up to you to decide what kind it is. Um, <laughs> you know, but, but it has like all these great things. And then there's a mage furnishings. And I want you to look at the first item on the mage furnishings tables. It's Alembic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Alembic, for those of you that do not know, is uh, one of those uh, big lab apparatus pieces that uh, you immediately – it immediately tells you that you're in a lab because it has like uh, a rounded flask with a neck and there's something boiling in it and there's a stopper on it and then there's like a hose and then it goes to another you know container. Basically, it's a distilling mm-hmm. kind of apparatus. Um, it's a real thing. And the reason I point this out is because this is exactly the type of thing that I love because this is exactly how I have such a great vocabulary. Yep. <laughs> because that's, that's what happened in the first edition DMG. It had all these fancy, weird words, and I was you know, a 10-year-old going, what in the hell is an ear spoon? What in the heck is an Alembic? What is a well, – Sam, you, you can know, just Google it. I can Google it now when I was 10, that didn't exist. <laughs> um, you know, what is a, uh, yeah, a, a um, skull spatula? What's a skull spatula? <laughs> you know, like Lord it's, just, only knows. It's, it's great. It's great. I love this stuff. These are great tables. If, they, they if really nothing are. else, you know, to just to get your imagination going and trying to, uh, you know, figure out what really is you know, in that room, if you really want to have a great flavor or theme of a mage's workshop or a mage's library, here you go. Boom. Yep. 
Um, and, and that's that's just a beautiful thing. Like the, I, I will say, like something that is a shortcoming in both my tabletop game running and my LARP module building is good set dressing. And this is here mm-hmm. to help. I really admire that. I don't even think enough about how much I could be improving my set dressing. And mm-hmm. yep, these are great tables for it. Just just stellar. Yeah, it's yeah. really interesting you say that, Brandis. Um, I'm going to out a secret of yours for a minute, if, if that's probably okay here. <laughs> Please uh, do. <laughs> in, in that, uh, I've known Brandis a long time, and one of the things he's always said is that he has trouble um, coming up with visual imagery of things a lot of times, right? Like yep. how, how something specifically looks. Um, the, the set dressing things are amazing for that, right? Like in Dust and Us, we outsource that because we had that option. But if you're, yep. if you're on a tabletop game, maybe, maybe you don't, right? <laughs> for sure. Well, and a great table for that is the container contents. Let me read you some entries of the container contents. Lumps, unidentifiable. Semi-liquid suspension. <laughs> Stone spheres. Husks. This is fine. Bodily organs. <laughs> this all sounds above board and not at all concerning. Yeah, <laughs> this, this is this is not a problem. I don't know what everybody's having such a problem with. Lumps, um, but, my lumps, my lovely unidentifiable yes. lumps. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's you know, it's it's good. I love it. It's really good. It's a great way to in, to round out the random table appendix. Yep, these two pages are just fantastic an appendix um, with maybe an appendix in it if it's a bunch of organs. It, uh, true. <laughs> <laughs> it's appendices all the way down. It's an internal like organ a- stuffed with tables. I heard you like some appendix, so I put some appendix in your appendix. Exactly. Yep. I'm, I'm for it. Uh, and then we move on to monster lists, appendix B. So this is one specifically i've had new dms talk to me that they found very valuable because they had no idea what monsters should go in what regions without going through the entire monster manual and they said that was incredibly overwhelming i i actually do identify with that yeah like if you're just staring at the whole table of contents that's intense um like obviously i have learned to live with that and uh, I know which things I can readily ignore, but it's intense. I can really, really understand being overwhelmed by that. So yeah, breaking it up by terrain. Absolutely. You need that. Um, and that is a, a classic type of table to have in a DMG or maybe the back of a monster manual, uh, very likely in a, um, a setting book. To, to tell you, you know, right. what this region is like kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think there's also a parity here between video games. So many video games divide things by biome, right? Mm-hmm. And that's really yep. easily identifiable. Like, oh, I'm in the Arctic. I'm going to see polar bears. Mm-hmm. I'm going to see ice methods. I'm going to see uh, frost giants, right? Yep. And that's true in, if you look across a lot of video games, because it's, it's easy, right? It's easy to identify. Absolutely. Well, and it also... It mimics the real world, right. so it has a, an air of familiarity 
that actually lends itself to making it easier than to show something that's not familiar. It's a way to make that biome part of the action in a very direct way Mm -hmm. uh, and and tell the story of that biome. And I mean, we all love that. Um, The other thing that strikes me about this is that if you did some very light uh, level banding, um, your West Marches uh, hex crawl needs are just about spoken for right right here, right now. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Yep. If you just level banded by tier, you'd just about be there because like D&D's power scaling within a tier is, is fairly gentle. Yeah, no, I agree with that. But yeah, so I think I, um, I agree with that in concept for the most part. Yeah. 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 So there's um just for the audience, there's uh, Arctic, coastal, desert, forest, grassland, hills, mountains, swamps, underdark, underwater, urban, and that's it. Those those are the tables you get, and it's listing the creatures and separating them by CR. Yep. Um, and and as someone working on under the seas of Adari, let me tell you. Uh, we had to spend a lot of time and energy expanding that underwater monsters business. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh my lord! Right, yeah. Um, and then after that, you get the separate set of tables about monsters, which is your your creatures by challenge rating yep. in alphabetical order. Um, uh, and I actually always forgot this was here. Uh, I keep going to the. Uh, the free version of this that Wizards of the Coast released mm-hmm. as a PDF, because I forget this is here when I need it. But uh, yeah, I, I absolutely sometimes just say to myself, okay, I want something around CR9. Um, what do? And yeah. then I go hunt, you know, CR9, maybe up one, down one, and find the closest thing to wherever I think the story is going. Mm-hmm. Well, so your comment brings up a question that I was going to ask you and Colin, and that is Appendix B. Why is it in the DMG and not in the Monster Manual? Um, page count signatures, uh, just, just just signature size. I'm I'm guessing. Like I don't know that for for sure, but if mm-hmm. I had to guess, I would say that uh, a signature is 32 pages, and you got to do what you got to do. Um, mm-hmm. adding another 32 pages to the monster manual is a non-starter for them. Uh, and so sliding in one, two, three, four pages here, pretty doable. Eight. Eight if you count the challenge rating. Oh, oh sure, sure. And, you can, and, and you can and also the, count the terrains, yeah, sure. Right. So, so eight pages. Uh, all, all the same. Um, mm-hmm. As I was, as I pointed out at the beginning of this series, the 320 pages of the DMG makes it the... Um, the biggest book of the Holy Trinity, right? Um, and I, I think that's relevant. I think the Monster Manual is actually bigger, right? Isn't it 350 pages? Uh, I, I don't have mine in front of me. Well, curse me for a fool. My Monster Manual is downstairs, so uh, another <laughs> time. It's 352 pages. I just pulled mine out. Okay. I, uh, um, I'm wrong then. That's fine. Yeah, no, it's fine. I mean, it's, I, I wasn't trying to call you out. I was just. But, but the, the point then stands that expanding that to 384 pages right. would have is been. Is non starter. Yeah. Really yeah. rough. And right. chopping eight 
pages of monsters from that book. Ouch. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. from, from a, I, I seem to recall a lot of design diaries talking about how they felt like they were cutting to the bone on what mm. they included. Right. Because so many monsters have become so iconic in D and D over the years. Right. Right. No, I, I, yeah, I'm, yeah. And I, and the thing is like, I feel like this, this set of tables, these eight pages are so useful, especially if you're homebrewing, right? It's so useful that it's, it's actually good to have it in the DMG because then you don't, you don't have to pull out your monster manual and have it sitting next to you while you're doing prep and using tables in the DMG. You just flip to the appendix B, which you might have a, you know, a bookmark in and you look up something real quick and then you go back to the table, whatever table you were using. Um, so I actually don't mind it in the DMG. Um, Fair enough. Because it's so, it's so helpful. From my, from my perspective, I think, um, you know, I think I said it at the beginning, which is if you take all the appendices, you, you can basically just run a game with what's here, right? Like you have all the sort of necessary component components of action contained in these appendices. So from, from that perspective, like you could break out the appendices and have its own little splat book, right? Of like, you want to generate stuff, here you go. And so for me, like it doesn't seem out of place here. Uh, this is one of those things where I would also want it in, in the monster manual if we're, if we're repeating content. Um, but if I guess it has to be in one place, um, here's not bad if you're looking at it from perspective of, all right, what are the components I need to, to run a game? Okay, I just established place, motive, and means, and now who has those or what has those. Right. I think that's a good point. One thing that I like about this appendix, digitally compared to physically, you can mouse over the monsters in the challenge rating and they're right there. That is really nice. really nice quality on D&D Beyond. That's nice. Yeah, I I actually use this appendix quite a bit a bit in my homebrew because there's a lot of times where I'm like, I want a creature that's like this. I want it kind of like this creature. What is that? And I can just look at it here. And I don't have to go outside the book, I, especially on D and D beyond. I can click right into it. And that's super nice. Nice. That's excellent. And that leads us to the maps appendix C. Uh, the, one other thing I want to say about appendix B is that uh, I, I would love to have just as easy of a, display for uh, all the monsters added by uh, Volos and Mordenkainen's and all the other books full of monsters because I generally only have one open at a time. Right. And, you know, they, they each have a pretty good spread of CRs. They're really good about that, actually. Just, yeah, you, you get me. Now, in the back of those books, does it have uh, the monsters in tables like this? It's just that they're in those books instead of here or what are you uh, I don't remember off the top of my head I don't either and I don't have them at hand so uh, Colin, do you know there is a bestiary by uh, alphabetical but I don't think there's in C in C monster lists uh, by creature type is how it's broken down oh, okay. oh no I take it back and also by challenge rating yep nice okay. but not by uh, environment uh, no creatures by environment too Oh, okay. Has all of it. And I'm looking in Volos, okay. and it has all that. Yeah. Nice. Well, good. It'd be nice if they uh, released a PDF like they released this this PDF. It'd be nice if they did that that incorporated uh, all three monster books. Uh, yeah, yeah. We all we all want things. Yeah. 
Yeah, I know. <laughs> and then uh, and then that leads us to the maps. Yep. And all, all of these maps are reused. So let me tell you where they come from. <laughs> One of them I recognize. Yeah, I mean, I, I say that it sounds like I'm saying it derisively, but I'm not. These are these are good maps. It's it's okay for them to have used, reused, you know, so, taken something from a different product or whatever, and and given it to us here. So this first uh, first map on page three ten, the windmill is from uh, Dungeon Two O Five. It's a map by map of a windmill by Mike Schley, and it's in the adventure Pray for Smiley Bob, which again was in Dungeon Two O Five. Uh, I don't know where the um, the manor comes from that's right next to it. I know that's also a Mike Sh- uh, Schley uh, piece of art, but I, I couldn't locate its its origin. The oh yeah, okay. The yeah. the um the one on page three eleven is actually from page ninety five of the first edition DMG. Yep. It's the uh, a random randomly determined dungeon from the first edition DMG. And in that book, it also has uh, descriptions of the contents of all of the different rooms. When I was just starting up my blog, um, there was a challenge to do a, do your own like variant stocking of this dungeon as just like a Mm -hmm. blog thing. Um, And so I started mine and I got, a few rooms in before I just petered out and finish it. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. But yeah, I was trying something more ambitious than I was ready for at the time. Yeah. Put it that way. Uh, the next map on page 312 is actually from the Vault of the Dracolich, which is a D&D Next product uh, that was produced for one of the D&D game days that was uh, the multi-table experience um and it's also available now on uh drive through rpg or DM, uh, dm's guild nice um, so that's it's a nice map uh on page 313 at the top that's actually the village of Mistwatch, which is in the nintir vale at the top of lake nen and it is from dungeon 186 the the, confirmed yep and then the the um the map on the bottom of that page is Dune, which is called the Hanging City, which is from dungeon one eighty nine Those are both by Mike Schley by the way uh page three fourteen at the top is another map from fourth edition it's from into the unknown the Dungeoneer's survival guide page one twenty seven and it was also used as the dripping cave's goblin lair from Storm King's Thunder nice. The pi- picture under that, which is the ship, is the uh, from the Lair Assault Talon of Umberley uh, weekly Lair Assault adventure for fourth edition. I-, I like that it is just the most bog standard of ships. Yes, like, it is. I have I have drawn a ship as identical mm-hmm. to that as my hand would allow on dry erase <laughs> boards. Yep, yep, dozens of times. Hey, that's good. That's fine. Uh, and then the last map is uh, the Vault of Catharandamus, which is from the third edition product, Tome of Magic, page 378. Hmm. It's a, a tomb of an evil... It's actually, I think, only a CL2 adventure. It's actually a pretty fun one, if I recall correctly. And so that's that's the maps. So the, there's a range of third, uh, fourth, third, fourth, and fifth edition maps here, uh, and also first edition if you uh, count the. Um, so so technically, what that means is the one on page three eleven, the one uh, from the first edition DMG, is actually a map by Gary Gygax. 
Right. Um, they cleaned it up and put some modern uh, architecture, uh, modern artistic cartography onto it. Um, but it's the same map. So uh, I appreciate that they gave us these maps um, as sort of, you know, exemplars of a couple of dungeons and a couple of towns you can use and a cavernous thing. And, you know, that's, that's a nice thing to do. It's good. Yep. I, don't, I can't complain, you know. Yep. I like the fact that they say, here are a bunch of different types of maps. And that's that's what this appendix that's is. That's it, yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> right. But, but if, if you're in a hurry for a map, like, what what'd you want, right? Right. Well, yeah. I, I think importantly for newer players, it shows the different types of maps, right? Like, it has the isometric map. It has, like, a traditional dungeon map. It has sort of a cutaway at the bottom. It has some city views, right? There's an individual yep. building. There's a, there's a vehicle, right? This really runs the gamut of, like, these are all the different types of maps that you might encounter or might like or might use or whatever, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, you know, they, the, um, the Catharandamus map has a large geological feature, you know, um, the, uh, the, the, um, the map from the into the unknown, the one that got used as the dripping caves and storm King's thunder is actually a map that was drawn into, uh, into the unknown as a map that has a lot of different types of terrain on it and a lot of different hazards. So you'll notice it has like a pool. It has a weird sort of muddy area. It has a mushroomy area. It has an area where there's sort of a, a, a sinkhole. There's a crevice. There's, you know, so it was, it was actually the example map showing all different kinds of things in it, which is kind of funny. Yeah. For, for Brandis, if you flip this map to the right, it is uh-huh. very, very similar to the mushroom cave with the crystals from the Planescape Adventure that I ran. Nice. Yeah, it's, uh, it's the main chamber and the room to the left. If you look at nice. Uh, what I, used. <laughs> I cut away the other stuff and do that. Yep. That's awesome. Uh, obviously, I never would have noticed, which you know tells you exactly how well that whole approach works. Right. Well, and even, you know, and this is the thing with, um, you know, even if you're reusing a map that has been, you know, you're, you're repurposing a map that's been used elsewhere. Um, if you were to just simply use these random tables to, to fill it up with, with the different items and elements, it's going to feel like a very different map. It doesn't matter if the person is familiar with the, where the room placement is because you're changing it. Like that's, you know. Yeah. To, to go back to the Tower of High Sorceries thing, right? You know, all the towers were different in Dragonlance, but it's essentially the same floor structure. You could you could certainly do worse than one map and, you know, four towers worth of content. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. uh, and also to that point, um, I've been following Dyson Logos on social media since basically forever. And he's talked before about how he'll be going along in in a session and he's, you know, he's a player in this game he's mapping the dungeon by hand and they're like halfway through the dungeon and he realizes that it's one he wrote <laughs> it's a map he drew and the the person running the game is either aware of that or not but it doesn't help him to speak of right <laughs> right right he drew the map yeah. you know in the first place because he's done hundreds of maps at this point and his maps right. are incredibly popular mm-hmm. and they're really good yeah. Oh, yeah. They're 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 gorgeous. So so I do want to say that like there there are a couple of things 
in just where dungeon design is. And this comes up because of some of those tables in Appendix A, where I think we still have some stuff to learn. Um, and we can especially learn from video games because they're solving problems that tabletop games are sort of slow to get to. But mm-hmm. creating creating a good arena for a boss fight is not something that I see happen a lot. I don't think that mm. enough work is getting done on that. Uh, it, it is not. Um, <laughs> I'm going. I'm going to be very opinionated here for for one moment. I, I brought it up because I hoped you would be. Oh my I'm gosh. sorry. We don't allow that on this show. <laughs> <laughs> it, it blows my mind when I when I see some concepts um, forwarded on you know the, the the tabletop community, and the first thing I think of is like, do do people not play video games? Because this is all very standard video game stuff that I see. Um, but but frankly, designing boss fights is hard in tabletop game because the thing that boss fights benefit most from in video game is to break the rhythm of your actions, right? To make you do something different while still doing what your character should normally you know, nominally be doing. Right. Yep. You know, from a simplest standpoint, uh, you want to do as high damage possible if you're a damage dealer and you also want to not die from all the stuff going on. Right. Um, but even video games have gotten more and more complicated over time as people track things, but the sort of action economy of tabletop games can make that really tricky because one of the things that, in my opinion, tabletop games and D&D in specific is very poorly is make your character want to move. In fact, in D&D, like once your character's in position, you never want them to move if you can help it, right? Because moving is almost always a bad thing. Uh, yeah, uh, less so in 5th than in 3rd uh, like, like ed, ed because of how uh, full-on attacks work, Yeah, right? But still true. Still true for sure. Because uh, opportunity attacks. Yeah, I think that we have really a lot to, a lot of innovations to do just on making dynamic terrain conceptually manageable for the DM at mm-hmm. the table. Right. Because j- just the mental load is can get really intense. I, I think one of the things that Brandis actually reminds me of all the time is the use object action. Yep. And I think a long way in making rooms really interesting and making encounters really interesting is finding uses for that use object action, right? Because if, right. if your goal becomes, I want to use this sort of weird action to do this thing, the way you play and the way you go about the encounter is, is very, very different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things that's always going to make that weird is that none of your class features, subclass features, spells, or magic items, or feats, or anything ever going to relate to things you can do with that action. And you need to like be prepared to try to make that a good thing, is I guess what I want to say. Right. Or, or alternately, um, bake in those resources as a benefit of using that action, right? Yep. yep. Yeah. No, I, I hear you. I think that's, um, that's a very interesting point. Um, there is a product called Alternate Objectives. It was actually, it's by Matthew Hansen. It's a, it was actually uh, produced for fourth edition, and then he updated it and created a fifth edition version of it. And it basically is, you know, here's some things to add to your dungeon slash building slash environment slash wherever you are to give the PC something else to do other than just fight, enter the room, fight the monster, right? I haven't seen the fifth edition version of it, so I can't say... 
one I can't say how it how how it is one way or the other, but it was uh, pretty decent in fourth edition. So, you know, it's funny. I, th- I think I mentioned this last time I was on the show too. Um, but the the burn notice uh, commentary track, I swear, it is the best DM resource that that someone could go and go and look for, <laughs> right? Yeah. But but the sh- I mean, they, one of the things they talk about is okay. We've established that the main character is never going to lose a fight. So how do we resolve conflict? Mm-hmm. Right, yep. and I think mm-hmm. I think a lot can go on the table of letting players be absolute badass powerhouses, and then letting violence not be the answer, right? Or at least not the total answer. Yeah, like it, it's certainly useful to win fights in Burn Notice. It beats the alternative, <laughs> but right, th- there's not a lot of tension in that fight. Not not if you've been watching the show for a while, right? Uh, but there can be tension around. Can he win the fight fast enough? Right. Or can he win the fight without alerting whatever else, right? Yep, absolutely. And uh, I, I don't know that there's a commentary track for it. There, there might be, but uh, you know, leverage is very much the same kind of lesson. They're never going to fail at their thing. So the show very often gets into making the, the thieves do the jobs of someone else on the team. Right. So that that's a lot of the fun there. Uh, and this kind of conversation brings us really nicely into Appendix D. <laughs> yes. Uh, which is a page of Dungeon Master inspiration. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure I did not realize this was here before uh, looking over this section earlier tonight. So full disclosure, this is the section I wanted to talk about most. Nice. And and the reason for that is if you look at the list, most of it is not fiction, or at least a lot of it isn't, right? It's a, it's yeah. about how to write and how to tell stories. And and I think that is really interesting, and I'm not sure the right thing to be putting in this appendix for people if they're looking on how to run games. Um, That's fair. It, what stands out to me is here's how you be a writer, here's how you be a storyteller, do all of this homework for D&D, as opposed to like Hey, want to run a swashbuckling game? Watch some Sinbad. You could do worse. Watch yep. some Pirates of Darkwater. Mm-hmm. Cool, right? Um, but I, I think we touched on this last time too, where Sam, you, you said, "But what if we don't have a TV?" Right? Um, right. And and that's you know that's that's a fair point, I think. Um, but I'm not sure this appendix necessarily helps that to any degree. Right, because if I don't have a TV, I might also not have access to. Uh, a lot of these these books that are here, right? So the the good news is that a lot of these are going to be available to local library, mm-hmm. and the the library has the price as just the right price. Um, they may not have a copy of Once Upon a Time: The Storytelling Card Game by Atlas Games, uh, and, and part of what interests me so much in this list is how they're. This is one of the fairly few times that D anD D really does point to other gaming companies that aren't Watsy. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Microscope on this list, for example, is yep. incredible to me. Yep. My- Microscope being here is, is a, a, I mean, I hope it has given uh, Ben a huge boost in sales. I don't know if that's true, but I hope so. Um, and uh, Robin Law's Hamlet's hit points being on here is, is pretty great. Uh, Robin Laws uh, contributed to the fourth edition DMG too, but it is by no means any kind of regular contributor to D and D. Well, so 
so the appendix in in the original DMG, the first edition DMG, yep. it was appendix in that was the inspirational reading for for dungeon masters, and every item on that list is literature, right, or fiction. And it's meant to give you inspiration that Colin, like what Colin's talking about, about like go watch Sinbad, right? Like it's, it's, um, it's about getting the thoughts in your mind of how that story, what elements of that story make it fun because you're watching the movie or you're reading the book or you're, you're sort of, uh, the expectation is you'll read these things and through osmosis, you'll realize that there is a story structure and that there's themes and that there's all these things. And right. this Appendix D is not about that at all. It's about here's some books that tell you, most of them anyway, that tell you about storytelling and about how to structure a thematic story or how to structure a plot line or how to, um, you know, uh, how, how to learn about uh, the different in some cases, different sort of gaming mechanisms, right? Like uh, the um, the magical medieval society Western Europe is on here by Joseph Browning and Susie Yee. Um, the, uh, the the things we think about games by Hindmarch and Tidball is on here. Uh, and then at the same time, there's uh, Living Fantasy uh, by Gary Gygax, which is a, a book of tables and information about fantasy worlds and how to create adventures. And then there's... Uh, Gygax's Extraordinary Book of Names by Malcolm Bowers, which is about literally just the origin of names and lists and lists and lists of names, which is an awesome resource. But, you know, and then TSR Arms and Equipment, Campaign Sourcebook, and Castle Guide from Second Edition, all three of those are on here. So, though, and know, those three delighted me especially. Right. Because right. those were so formative for me. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I was looking through the, the uh, Campaign Sourcebook and Catacomb Guide last week. Right. Um, just because I I needed to kind of refamiliarize myself with all that text and what it has to say about dungeon building uh, it stands the test of time without any question. Mm -hmm. uh, it's uh, we, we should do another episode on this at some point, but <laughs> it, it really is much more about um, the exploration level use of uh, dungeon space and how it changes through exploration. Uh, than sort of your arena design, but mm -hmm. um, that's just another side of the same coin, right? Well, so th it strikes me that there's three types of books on this list. So there's only really one type of book on the original Appendix N, which, by the way, I'm really sad they didn't make this Appendix N in this DMG, well, even though I know they didn't want to skip letters or whatever, but it's the last Appendix. Well, they could have just called it Appendix N. Well, sure, and, and there is an Appendix E in the Player's Handbook that is the fiction Appendix no, okay. Well, whatever. But, but we're not we're not talking about that book right now. So <laughs> uh, I understand, but I, no, I just want to make yeah. the point they didn't skip the fiction. No, they just put it yeah, in the other book. Yeah. But so here's the thing about this is that this this book has three there's three types of books on this on this page. There's books about designing and playing games that are, that will help you sort of think differently maybe about those sorts of things. There's books specifically about game mechanics like those TSR books and the book of names and the Gary Gygax book. And then there's books that tell you something about writing or the history of the game. Yep. 
because there's the writer's complete fantasy reference. And then on here is John Peterson's Playing at the World. Mm-hmm. Playing at the World is an awesome book, to- completely awesome, wonderful book. It's also an enormous giant tome. <laughs> and I don't, I hesitate to say it this way, but it's not going to make you a better DM. Sure, that's not its goal as text. It's right. It's not. It's, it's not just its a goal. history, right. right? And so, like, I, I mean, I, I, th- I think some of the choices on this list are very interesting. They, it does qualify as dungeon master inspiration if you really like games and you like history, and you want to meld those two into the history of games. It's not even specifically RPG specific. It's more about development, early development, and through playing through war games. Peterson wrote a second book called The Elusive Shift, which was just recently released, which is about the beginning of RPGs. But of course, it didn't exist when this was compiled, so that's why it's not on this list. Well, I think that I think that like wanting to inspire some sense of legacy in this fifth edition is not unreasonable. Oh, sure. No, I, I and I I wasn't. Uh, categorizing these to make a complaint or to say that one of them shouldn't be on here. That's not what I was trying sure. to. Sure, sure. I was just p- pointing out that, uh, and you're right. There, there is the big fiction list in in the PHB, and and that's fine. Um, and and that more closely mimics the the list in the original uh, DMG. Um, but this one's very interesting. I, I, I this this list is is delightful, actually, in in my mind. It's a delightful list. Yeah, for me, one of the things that stands out is the inclusion of uh, Sir Thomas Mallory, right? Like amongst all the other yep. stuff, then there's La Morte Arthur, right? Mm-hmm. Like right, right there on the list. And there's not a lot of other books like that on this list. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what else is on here? The New Dictionary of Cultural Literacy by Hirsch, which is an interesting inclusion. It, it's it's such a, a eclectic list, which is mm-hmm. kind of exactly what you want, I think. If you're gonna like, if you're gonna spend a whole section trying to uh, generate more light than heat, just grabbing from everywhere is sort of the way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Le Mortartur, absolutely. Like, if you want to understand some of the underpinnings of how fantasy became what it is, you need to read that. But <laughs> if if we're going to get into the underpinnings of how fantasy is what it is. Um, Professor Tolkien should be on here, but he's on the other list. So, okay. <laughs> right. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's kind of a mistake, right? Like that list exists in the, the player's handbook, but for, for as much as it's about nailing theme and it's about giving players ideas and saying like, this is your overall construct, you can draw on that or whatever. I, I think it's equally, if not more important to say, this is the type of action, this is the type of story that, that you can run in these settings. In a, in a very easy, like ex- expectation setting kind of way, and I will actually agree that like sticking st- strictly to books uh, doesn't sort of engage with just the reality of 2014. Like we entered a multimedia life, right? Um, and we did it well before 2014. I. Uh, Gygax was pretty clear about being very inspired by westerns in Boot Hill, right? That that's that's a multimedia life right there, and maybe not everyone has access to 
any one kind of thing or the patience to sit down for any one kind of thing. But, you know, not everyone listens to podcasts either, and I think that's a crime. Not, not really, folks. It's fine. <laughs> the, the point is that just because it's an alternate media doesn't mean it should be off the list, right? Right, exactly. And this does not say, you know, in the first edition DMG, and, and I think, I don't know what it says in the PHP here, but it says inspirational reading there, right? And Appendix E in the, in the PHB says inspirational reading. Yeah. This says Dungeon Master inspiration. So why can't you have other media? It doesn't have to be just reading. Well, right. And it, the very first item in the list is a card game. Is, is a card game, right, and is not reading. But everything else... Yeah. Right? But no, I agree with you. I think it'd be nice if there was some other media on here. Uh, having said all of that, man, I still like this list. I, I I definitely want to go run down some of these titles, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, both here and the players handbook list. Um, I, I I sort of I don't know. Maybe I'm not the only one who's said to himself, "This this is your attack of Gene Wolf." It is not the your attack of Gene Wolf. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it is the year I uh, I just sort of uh, luxuriate in Temps and Weir's writings. And so if you have not read Gideon the Ninth and Harrow the Ninth, you are missing some amazing uh, D&D inspiration. And I recommend it in the highest terms. It has come out so recently that it wouldn't have made it into uh, um, Xanathar's at least. Might have made it Tasha's, but that's about it. But importantly, Brandis, you've also gotten some more inspiration lately. Because you completed Dark Souls. That's true. I have <laughs> completed Dark Souls. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things that I love in um, uh, Isirian's Enchiridion of the West Marches is that the book calls out a lot of its inspirations right at the very beginning. And Dark Souls has definite pride of place there, uh, along with Darkest Dungeon and uh, other similar games. So that's really talking about engaging with video games as a source of inspiration. Again, not something everyone's going to be able to do. No, no argument there. Um, There's nothing wrong with not having a console and not having a machine that can run, uh, you know, dark souls in a respectable way. That's, that's totally fine and normal, but boy, if you do have access to them, you can get some amazing material from them. Um, like on creature design alone, um, Dark Souls can be such a masterclass. As I certainly don't need to tell Colin, whose fault it is that I got involved in Dark Souls. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a lot of stuff there, and it's very interesting what people ape from that series in their in their work, right? Um, because I think a lot of what people latch onto is, is not necessarily what other people latch onto, and that's you know great from a source of inspiration perspective. Yeah, I think that. You know, everyone has their own thing that's most essential about Dark Souls, and you know, Sultan Sanctuary is a perfect example of the things they thought were most essential about Dark Souls and brought over, and that's valid. They did really good things there. So did Hollow Knight. Yeah, or in, totally and even from software, right? Like what they bring forward into their their different yep. games evolves over time, and yep. you know, you look at Bloodborne. Obviously, it draws on the source, but 
what they carry forward there is vastly different than like Dark Souls 3 that comes out afterwards, right? Yeah, I haven't played either of those yet, but I have heard you talk about them at times, and that's that's just a really interesting like mix of ideas, sort of sort of melange of ideas to be in. Anyway, you don't find that on these lists because these yeah, are th- lists. that is that is the truth. <laughs> that is the truth. Um, but I think that if you uh, if you got the the full from software appendix n, you know, if you went to their source texts. Texts D and D is on there, and you can tell because mimics. Yeah, right. You know, if absolutely nothing else, boy, you can tell because mimics. Um, but they would also wind up sharing a lot of appendix and material, right? It, it, it's all part of this big weird tapestry. The point being that um, it isn't just books that connect D and D to people. Right or connect right. those ideas to D and D to people and vice versa. It's the whole menagerie of types of entertainment and types of information presentation and types of everything that we come into contact with now in our lives. Yes, maybe back in the seventies, it, it was more about you know books and, and in some cases movies. Right, but now. I mean, the internet. Well, and and sort of relevant to just the mission statement of this podcast, uh, you know, D&D's inspiration is in some cases itself. Like mm-hmm. just strip mining its own past is a huge part of D&D's path forward. Uh, Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft is part of the proof there. Uh that book is an equal mix of remixing D and D's own past and introducing new things, which are probably going to get remixed in let's call it ten years. Um, and then you also have them like drawing on things that were built on the foundation of D and D. So, like ideas have gone out into the world and now come home again uh, in all these different ways. I always find it interesting to know where authors got their inspiration, right? And to, to think about how all these connections just sort of pull together. I, certainly the player's handbook list, including uh, Weiss and Hickman's um, Dragonlance novels as inspiration is absolutely correct. Is a great source of inspiration for D and D campaigns. I mean, it's completely recursive, but, of course it is. Sure. Right. Well, and, and, you know, by now the game has existed for 40 years. So 47. Yep. Right. Plus. So, so because of that, uh, you know, it, it makes sense a little bit that you're going to call back. Right. Yep. It would, it would be, it would seem silly to not call back. And it's okay to admit that some of that is inspiration for what's going on today. Yep, I absolutely agree. Um, I think that finding something really wonderful in how an idea has gone out into the world and uh, saying, hey, you were copying us, but it wasn't clone degradation. It was synthesis. Mm -hmm. Well, now we can borrow that. And we we can use the synthesized thing. 
like Lord knows that any any franchise that runs its IP out long enough is going to do that. And my proof for this is Marvel and DC. You know, they've been doing this for uh, twice as long as D&D has, but they strip mine their own past all the time. That's the whole MCU. I don't really have anywhere else I'm going with that. Just, <laughs> uh, just like where people find inspiration is interesting. All right, so that brings us to the indices, and I expect you guys to comment on some <laughs> indices. <laughs> I don't have anything. Yeah, they exist. You called, you called my bluff, Brandis. Good job. I mean, I, I'm happy that there is a nice index in the book. Uh, yeah. I think it's uh, too often that, that it's possible to see a book that is this hefty and this meaty without an index because it's an RPG book. But as I have said many multiple times on these various different episodes, this is a work of reference. It is yep. meant to be there for you to reference it when necessary, when needed, when when you need inspiration or when you're prepping something or when you have a, a you know writer's block or whatever it is. And so having an index is very important and it's a very good thing. And it's a halfway decent index. It's 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 not a, a schlump. Yep, um, I, I have not come looking for a whole ton of things over the years that I have not found. Uh, I've I've gone to the search bar of D and D Beyond and come up sort of nope, not in the first page of responses. I guess it's not here more mm-hmm. often than I have with DMG and the yeah. and the index. So. I don't use D&D Beyond as extensively uh, as possibly the two of you do. So uh, I'm, I often have the book, and I use the index multiple times. Uh, it has been uh, at least two calendar years since there was ever not a D&D Beyond tab open on my browser. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's just – it would be like closing my Gmail – Mm-hmm. Like I need that all the time, no, all the time. So why would I close it? This is sort of how it is for me as a freelancer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, uh, unless Colin wants to wax eloquently about the value of the indices in <laughs> D and G, I think we might be done. In in general, I'm a big fan of being able to reference things easily. So thumbs yep. up. Um, one of these days, I'll probably have to learn how indexes get made in such detail. That will be a nightmare. Um, but I, I certainly recall, um, I think it was Xanathar's got really hammered in reviews for having nothing in the way of an index. I think I have that right. If I don't, ooh, sorry, Xanathar's folks. Yeah, and it has the lists of names instead, right? Yep. So those last few pages are lists of names uh, based on species or race or if you're human, yep. the area that you're from or something. Yeah. I, re- I really love those tables too. They're, yeah. they're really handy. No, they're good. I mean, they're, you know, it's always nice to just have a name at hand, you know? I mean, like that's, that's an indispensable tool for a DM. You know, it's, a, it's amazing how something I'm totally going off on a tangent, but it's amazing how something so simple can make the world feel alive. You know, if the PCs meet just some random NPC and then they ask the person their name and all you have to do is glance down at your list and say, Oh, you know, my name is Willem. Then, 
you know, that it makes it seem like, oh, that person has a name and that's, you know, not just Bob, the random NPC. So uh, that sort of thing is really helpful. I actually, I actually balked at the lists of names in the back of Xanathar's when I first got it, but then I was like, you know what? I actually think I kind of like this. And then I used it to develop some shorter tables of random names. Nice. So it's, it's good. Yeah, I liked it. So, so that brings us to the conclusion of this whole series of uh, going through the 5th edition DMG chapter by chapter. In some cases, uh, we need two episodes to cover a chapter. And it's been a really incredible run. Um, Colin, I really appreciate you taking time to join us for two of the episodes. I really appreciate the invitation to be on. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, and, and Sam, I've really enjoyed going through this whole book with you. Uh, it has certainly forced me to do a, a line-by-line read of a book that I otherwise would have skimmed a lot more and, and always have skimmed a lot more. Um, there's been fairly little in here that, that I've discovered that I had not read at all, right? It was just years and years of piecemeal skimming that added up to pretty close to 100% completion. Yeah, I think I read the book uh, cover to cover when I first got it, just because that's how I am. Sure. Um, But then, as I said, it's purely a work of reference for me at this point. So, you know... Uh, there are some passages that I read for this series that I haven't looked at in five, six years, you know, so it was good. Of all the core books, this is the one that I reference probably most frequently. I think from as a, as a DM, at least running games. Uh, but like you, I, I'm not a big reader of books from start to finish in the, the tabletop game space, but uh, I found that I think I've read this one the most for sure. Um, I mean, the freelancing has me referencing the, the player's handbook, especially for spells, just all day, every day, right? Uh, so so I don't know sort of how my balance shakes out on that. But um, there, there's a lot of really good material here. Um, I think that we could be arguing about its organization uh, until... We're blue in the face, and probably no two people are going to completely agree on the, the flow of chapters. But I do still kind of like putting chapter eight first. I think, I think that might be my, my ideal first chapter. Uh, maybe followed by chapter five because it's the, the next most like mechanical reference one. But um, I think it's interesting that right out the gate, they're going with the stuff that's intended to inspire with all that, all the world building material and all the cosmos building material, uh, that, that's a really, it's still just a really statement laden choice where I'm not completely certain what the statement's intended to be. Yeah. Anyway, um, that I think is going to wrap us up for this. Uh, so thank you everyone who's come along with us on this sort of long weird journey. Uh, we really appreciate you. We've loved having conversations with you on Twitter. Uh, and I'm not sure what our next project is going to be. Sam and I have uh, batted a bunch of stuff around, but um, I think we might be diving into recording for the 12 Days of Edition Wars 
2021 edition uh, in the pretty immediate future. So, uh, Colin, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, they can find me at Stands in the Fire on Twitter. And uh, in ages past, if you want to see what I've written in the last couple of years, you can check out tribality.com. Awesome. Uh, you also have a personal blog that has amazing material on it uh, that I think people should read. Uh, if you don't feel like promoting it, I will not force you, but it is great. Oh, no, sure. Uh, stand, StandsInTheFire.com. The reason I don't promote it is I write so erratically that if you want any sort of regularity there, uh, then don't read that blog. But there is a lot of stuff there if you want to go back in time. <laughs> yep. it, it's very good, folks. It's very good. And Sam, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me at RPGMusings.com, where I write a lot about Rhyme of the Frostmaiden uh, and how to... Uh, how to take the information that is in it and use it to the best of your uh, group's preferences. And I also write about Greyhawk there. Um, and I am on Twitter at DM Samuel. What about you, Brandis? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Brandis Stoddard. I also write for tribality.com. Uh, my personal blog is Brandis Stoddard, and my Patreon is Brandis Stoddard. Awesome. So my, my few final words here, folks. If you can get vaccinated, please get vaccinated. We're we're back to as bad as things have ever been. The the hospitals are full and kids are going back to school. Please get vaccinated. Please for the love of God. And I know that people hate to hear this, but wear your mask and social distance. Yep. <laughs>